Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. The Freshman Foundation helps young athletes be ready for every next step in the game of life through mental performance coaching. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to tell you about the upcoming Freshman Foundation digital course. The course is designed specifically to help high school athletes be ready for the challenging transition to college athletics. It's something that I've been working on for a number of years. We will teach the critical skills that I've identified through the research conducted from interviews on this podcast and through academic research on the topic of athletic transitions. The course will be available on August 1st, 2023. Stay tuned to the podcast for updates on the course or join our community by visiting my website, michaelvhuber.com. Thank you for listening to the Freshman Foundation Podcast. Welcome to the Freshman Foundation, a podcast that helps young athletes be ready for every next step in the game of life. How has Andrew Trimble applied his experiences on the rugby pitch to found a successful sports technology company. In this episode, we're honored to host Andrew Trimble, a former professional rugby player turned founder and CEO of Kairos Sports Technology. From overcoming personal challenges to building a successful company, Andrew guides us through his interesting and valuable journey. Stay with us as we navigate his remarkable transition from sports to entrepreneurship. Let's build your foundation with Andrew Trimble. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Uh, We met in Toronto at the Leaders Conference, which was really my first time there. It was really uh, a great event. Um, so, So just tell me about your background in sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, um occasion in toronto is a good opportunity it's always a good opportunity to meet different people and different stakeholders and different people who are at the event for different reasons and um actually it's probably been one of the things i've noticed about since i finished playing rugby professionally it's a it's a a very unusual environment and when you come out of that environment you realize um how one-dimensional that environment is and in a lot of ways it's exactly what you need to be a high performer or you know perform at your best but in a lot of ways, it's an unhealthy environment and you come out of that and you meet different types of people from all over the world doing different types of things. And it's life is much richer when you come out of it and you have a new kind of appreciation of it and meeting yourself and a number of other people at the event is probably an example of that. But um, anyway, that, that was a, a quick tangent or one of my kind of realizations um, since yeah. coming, coming out of that environment. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I grew up playing rugby. I was in a, a rugby playing family. My dad um made that very clear i was uh, i was interested in in football and soccer when i was youngster and i had a, a soccer um annual or sticker book and he confiscated it at one stage and replaced it with a, a rugby an irish rugby annual and at that stage i knew this isn't up for grabs um <laughs> i'm in a rugby family and i i, I was going to be a rugby player and fortunately for me um i was i was quite good at it and um uh, yeah it allowed me to go on and uh, and kick on and i was always a rugby fan it was always plan a for me you know i i kind of studied and stuff and i was interested in a few other things and 
but it was always rugby for me. I always wanted to do that. And I was lucky that that kind of dream came true for me. Um, and, and gradually, you know, there's kind of traditional pathways into pro rugby in, in, in Ireland. And it tends to typically be through the school system, slightly less now. And it used to be more so, um, uh, certainly whenever I was growing up and 16, 17, I kind of grew into had quite a large, <laughs> uncoordinated frame as a, as a uh, kind of youngster and kind of grew into that. And there was a bit of athleticism and it kind of kicked on. And as I started to perform well, I got more and more confident and started to perform well on the, on the right occasions, whenever the right coaches and selectors were, were watching. And that allowed me to kick on and play for, for Ireland schools, play for um, Ulster and Ireland under 21s. And I got a development contract. There was a coach at Ulster, the team that I played for my whole career, who um, I'm really thankful to because I was quite quite a shy young fella. He identified that and he he knew that I needed to be exposed to that environment from an early age. I needed to get used to it. I needed to find my feet and be myself in that environment. And uh, so he, he put me in the deep end probably earlier than I should have been um, in there um, by merit anyway. And um, he put me in there and it was the best thing for me because within, um, you know, a quicker kind of turnaround, I was able to be myself socially. I was able to be myself um, with with ball in hand in terms of my performance and, and what I was doing and, and training everything. I just settled in and found my rhythm quite quickly. I played in the league for Ulster and then I played in the European Cup for Ulster, which was a step up. And then I played in the Autumn Internationals when I was I just turned 21 uh, for Ireland and um all across the way it was an amazing experience for me i was in an ulster team that was captained by you know my hero growing up um david humphreys um i had a picture of him on the wall when i was 15 um and then i got to you know play against australia the first game straight in the deep end real high level uh, international rugby straight up and i was playing number 13 for any of your listeners who aren't rugby fans they still might be um they might know the name Brian O'Driscoll, um, an Irish rugby legend, one of the best um, players that's ever played the game. And when you think of Irish rugby, you think of Brian O'Driscoll. Um, he was injured that autumn and I was playing 13. I, I replaced the great Brian O'Driscoll and uh, I was feeling the, the the pressure. So it was it was an amazing experience and uh, yeah, kicking on, kicked on from there. And it certainly wasn't straight, um, you know, playing sailing from there. Um, there was a lot, lot of ups and a lot, a lot of downs, a lot of injuries, a lot of difficulties, a lot of non-selection, a lot of, um, you know, success, um, success, a small bit of success towards the end of my career. But it was an amazing time and it taught me a lot. Um, and a lot of that I'm probably channeling into life after rugby, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that I want to ask you about because there's a lot there. Obviously, you've had a really, really long and robust career. So at what point? did you know in like in your adolescence or in your life that you're like, Hey, I'm pretty good at rugby. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say it was probably, I, I, I got like kind of an in- increased kind of realization, a few sort of realizations. I can cope at this level and thrive at this level. And in school, um, I, just, I loved schools rugby because it's, it's the schools and under 21s rugby underage rugby is the best rugby I'll ever play. Cause it's, guys your your age obviously and you have the same interests and it's the it's fun it's absolutely fun it turns professional and it gets a bit serious it gets a bit intense and it gets you know high levels of expectation and intensity and expectations from coaches and um supporters and everything 
Um, but at schools level, it's still it's got that uh, enough. Uh, it's it's serious enough and uh, to be high performance, but it's still fun and it's still lads playing with their mates that you went to school with, and that's the pureness of of, of sport. And um, so yeah, playing um, Irish schools or you know kind of schools rugby in Ireland, I definitely felt felt like if I got the ball in my hands, I was going to beat defenders. I felt like I was going to be dominant. I felt. Like I was just confident, always wanted the ball, always wanted to to, to thrive and kind of sh- show what I was capable of doing. It was a great feeling. Um, and then, like, like anything else, you know, you're a big fish in a small pond. And then once you go up a level, then you start to realize, oh, this is not as easy as it was, as it was a year ago. Um, so you have to kind of reinvent yourself and discover a way to differentiate and um, show what you're, you're capable of there. So I did that a couple of times. And then once I kind of figured it out, then yeah, you get okay. I can I can cope here. I can do well here. Um, there's definitely you know moments in in my career personally where you know I, I felt like I was behind. You know I kind of kicked on with a level of athleticism and kind of natural ability and natural flair. And then um, guys who are three, four, five years younger than you, they kick on and then they go through that that purple patch. And you have to you have to kind of you have to find something different. I, I actually changed positions whenever I was. 21 22 and it was a new skill set and i had to kind of find my find my feet again and think my way into a game rather than just um relying on natural ability so yeah there was a couple of kind of realizations along the way but in terms of um personally what i wanted it was always it was always rugby it was all i always wanted to play professionally always wanted to play for ireland i was a rugby fan growing up and Mm -hmm. yeah that opportunity meant the world to me yeah. So, so you met, well, I guess the first question is when did you sign a contract with Ulster? How old were you? I was, um, I was 20. Remember I signed my first contract? No, <laughs> no. Uh, anybody who's uh, listening, kind of they're familiar with, with American sports. Um, I mean, what I was getting paid as a, as a professional, um, you know, there's, there's, there was guys working at the shop getting paid more than me, <laughs> but as far as I was concerned, I was a professional and I had landed and I told all my friends I was a pro rugby player. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, at, at 20 years, uh, 20 years old, it was, it was a great opportunity for me. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was an opportunity to kick on and make a life um, of this and, and make a career or something I, I loved. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, you had, a coach who really took you under his wing, mentored you. So like at what point when you joined the club, did that happen? So um, the coach actually ended up, he got, he got sacked from uh, the, the, my team. So he was there. He had a period of success for a couple of years and, um, and then a, a period where results didn't go our way. Supporters turned against him and he got he got sacked for one reason or other. I'm not sure exactly what the politics were behind the scenes, but he went elsewhere. He went to one other club and then moved on to um, Saracens in London. His name is Mark McCall. Um, and now he's considered, he's got a whole load of success with Saracens, won European Cups, Premierships, everything. And um, I think he would probably say that he had a tough period at Ulster, probably learned a lot. And then um, now, I mean, I think Ulster supporters are probably going, how on earth did we let this guy go? He's one of the greatest <laughs> coaches there is out there. And he may not have been then. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. But certainly there was certainly the raw ingredients of what he is now. 
and this is probably just an example of how um, um, he had a intuition maybe as a coach. Um, there certainly that was the skill set that you know the story I'm describing here now. He identified that I was shy. He identified that I was kind of in my shell a little bit. I wasn't quite being myself. I wasn't comfortable in that environment. Um, and he, I, he, he, te- he told me a story and you said he, he mentored me. He didn't really mentor me. He just spotted this about me and made this decision on, on my okay. behalf and allowed me that opportunity. But he, um, I think we were doing a workshop with the Ireland under twenties and he was brought in, he was doing a small bit of coaching under 21s. It was at the time. And he, uh, he spotted me just not, not contributing to the group. And he knew I had things to say, but I wasn't saying them. I wasn't backing myself. I wasn't, um, I just wasn't exhibiting the confidence, wasn't back on myself and I wasn't, um, yeah, just showing, showing that confidence that he thought that I should have had, I suppose. Um, and he, he said, he just watched me and he just watched me just sit there and not, not piping up whenever I should have been. And, um, he identified that he needs to be in this environment more often. He needs to be here. He needs to be here every day so that he gets used to this so that he can start to be himself because we need him to be himself if he's going to thrive if he's going to kick on so yeah he, he gave me um a contract a development contract it was it's kind of semi-professional contract um at the time and um, that was ahead of my time i didn't deserve it no i wasn't performing badly i would have been in the mix for a couple of guys who would have got a contract but he gave me that because he thought i was underachieving i needed to be in the environment to get the best out of myself what a brilliant bit of insight for him to spot that and within a couple of years i felt like i repaid that confidence by the time i repaid that confidence he was probably gone somewhere else so i repaid it to to a different coach unfortunately from his perspective but um i thought that was a really interesting um experience my experience and i'm very very thankful um uh um, that he you know made that decision on my behalf and allowed me the opportunity that i otherwise wouldn't have had absolutely so so when he when that happened like how did it make you feel like what was the what was was there a transformation there for you knowing that he was sort of invested in sort of your development and spotting that maybe deficiency that you had to improve on yeah he he seemed to he picked up things about me that i think whenever he mentioned them i would have acknowledged that i knew that about myself but i wouldn't have been really that self-aware and again this is a time everybody's self-aware now everybody's self-reflective everybody understands and is mindful and that's just a language that didn't exist in in 2004 2005 you know um and uh yeah he i suppose i it it took me back then the culture and the environment was pretty old school you know it was a little bit old-fashioned um the opinion of everybody in the changing room is actually the opinion of one alpha male or maybe a couple of people who are kind of in that circle and very mm-hmm. old-fashioned, reasonably unhealthy, I would say, but everybody had it and there was kind of different levels of, of unhealthiness, I suppose. Um, but, I, you know, that was an environment where it took me a long time to kind of find my feet, and find my confidence and find my voice and really back myself. Um, and uh, I think that, 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 that environment in rugby change rooms or professional sport changing rooms has changed dramatically for the better even by the time i was finishing there were young fellas coming through characters different types of people from different types of backgrounds and challenging people and it was just very very good to see you know the traditional alpha meal in the room wasn't necessarily the one calling the shots by the time i finished which was a really good place to be but um but yeah so it took me i'd say probably about i didn't speak to anybody for the first six months you know i just 
took me a while. I was I was shy and um it just took me a while to find my feet and come out of my my shell. And um when I did that, you know, it was um it was it was very good for me, very good for me personally to grow and very good for me um from a from a rugby perspective to be able to to be able to thrive and, and be myself and fulfill potential. Yeah. So were there aside from having that shyness and, and ultimately working through it and, and developing and sort of moving past it, were there any other challenges that you that you could sort of identify that were were big ones in that process of going through the, the system as you were sort of growing through, you know, through the club? Um there were I, I identified um, things about myself. I was, I was, I was shy. I was also quite, I was uh, quite nervous. I probably had a little bit of imposter syndrome on game night. I always felt like I, um, you know, tonight's going to be the night everybody finds out that I've been lucky numerous times to get me into this position. You know, these are this sort of, mm-hmm. sort of demons. And I'm sure this happens over and over again. Lots of people who I speak to experience something similar. So for me, um, acknowledging that and coming up with with tools to to manage that and tools to go out and um uh and ultimately i suppose um impress my game and and be myself out there and and almost like force behaviors that allowed me to be the best version of myself um just it kind of standard sports psychology and standard kind of preparation and routines and um yeah ultimately I, i never i never enjoyed game day always thought there's more to lose than there is to gain um you know i was talking earlier on about the 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 pureness of playing schools rugby with your mates playing for fun once you get turned professional that that kind of goes out the window a little bit you know you 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 play for a job it's you're expected to perform there's an intensity and expectation around that and sometimes it's hard to um it's hard to I suppose fulfill what's expected um from you so i i i always um yeah i was always nervous about that so uh, yeah that's probably i'm sure they're they're connected you know my shyness as a young fella and um and struggling with the the expectation and um and the nerves around game night yeah i i don't think any of that is is uncommon regardless Mm. of of geography sport um developmental level I, i think for a lot of athletes the norm is to feel that way, right? Mm. You know, like I don't belong or if, if I don't perform, there's sort of a worst kind of worst case, what if, right? You're always mm. sort of worried about that. But I think you talk about sports psychology, I think ultimately, regardless of where you're at, like you do have a choice mindset wise to sort of, you know, accept the situation you're in and try to make the most out of it. And I think for a lot of athletes looking back, myself included, you know, I think we all put probably more pressure on ourselves than we needed to. But without the guidance from somebody to help you sort of put things into perspective, a lot of times you're sort of left to fend for yourself. Did you ever have access to sports psychology services, to mental coaches that maybe helped you with it while you were playing? Yeah, I did. I, um, there was, um, and again, this would have been in back in the days whenever it wouldn't have been normal, really. Um, I'm talking about it. It was in the dark ages, you know, it was 15 years ago, I suppose. Big difference. yeah yeah and um yeah there were definitely um there was uh, one fella came on tour and i kind of I eventually got to the point where I, I, w- I was a little bit skeptical as well um i i naturally find a groove and i naturally find coping mechanisms and and ways to to just to convince myself or remind myself how good i could be and convince myself to be excited about performance and not daunted by performance and i remember myself and a, a teammate 
um, used to say to each other, be brave just before kickoff, be brave out there, call for the ball, get the ball in your hands, make sure take defenders on, don't shift the ball into someone else's hands who's in no better position than you are. And my dad constantly telling me, back yourself, you have to back yourself. So um yeah there's 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 definitely the you know little coping mechanisms you develop mm-hmm. yourself and then from speaking to to a couple of people one was just a not just a, he was i mean he wasn't a sports psychologist he was a video analysis analyst sorry and um and he he just knew he's just a rugby nerd like he absolutely knew his irish rugby inside out knew all everything like all the strengths of all the different wingers and um and he knew what i was good at and he knew how to get the best out of me um so yeah there's a number of kind of cues there but it was that was more from a a coaching perspective and then the sports psychologist um i i identified that in team meetings you know how you get like a coach would say you know ask a what seems a little bit like a rhetorical question but it's actually not a rhetorical question he's he's asking for either an obvious answer or an answer that some people should know and um there was a number of different times in meetings I find myself, he's asking something and it, I'm going, is that obvious? Like, I know the answer to that, I know the answer <laughs> to that question. I don't want to say, I don't answer a rhetorical question. You just look stupid in front of, you, <laughs> in front of your mates. Um, but it wasn't rhetorical and it actually wasn't as obvious as I thought it was. And it turns out I actually, I, you know, tactically and strategically, I knew the messages he was trying to deliver. So I understood the game very well. And um, I just sort of realized, why am I always worried about what people think or worried about you know and then i explained this to the sports psychologist and he said just say something just say something you know (laughs) and um i i had seen guys from other teams just saying stuff and getting kind of um carrying favor with coaches and getting you know just being well received and then but i was smarter than that and i could see and i could contribute more value than some of the guys as well and i was just frustrated with himself that they would say something like, I was going to say that. And that idiot just took my, <laughs> took my answer. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but the, I think you, you, you raise a really important point. And in, in terms of the value of working with somebody who's in the sports psychology profession, because I think, because so many athletes tend to be in their head, right. And they're afraid to make a mistake that they don't speak up because they don't want to look stupid, right? Or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it. When you talk to somebody who's in the mental performance field like myself, what I find is a lot of athletes sense relief because they can speak freely and they're actually getting practice in terms of speaking up in front of somebody they can trust in most cases. And then the person feeds back like myself can feedback perspective. Like what if you answer the question that way? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Mm-hmm. When someone else says, what's the worst thing else can, that the, what's the worst thing that's going to happen when someone else says it to you, it's like, oh, that makes complete sense. When you say it to yourself, it's yeah. like, no, the worst thing that's going to happen is going to be, I'm going to get, I'm going to get sacked, <laughs> right? Like, because yeah. I don't want to, they're going to cut me because I'm going to seem, seem like a dummy or I'm going to speak up. You know what I'm saying? So like having that relationship with somebody that you completely trust, who also doesn't control, you know, your playing time, your, the personnel is also a huge factor because you're always worried about what your coach is going to think of you and how's that going to affect my, my time on the field. Yeah. And, and, and it's, I always worried about what my teammates thought. I, that was my, my biggest thing. And I remember, um, I'm sure we'll get on to this, but there was kind of a purple patch at the end of my career. 
And I felt like I, I didn't quite fulfill potential up until I turned 29 and I had the season of my life, you know, I had like a couple of years where everything just aligned perfectly and I really understood what made me tick. And the other side of this is nothing meant more to me than, than my teammates saying to me, you had a blinder tonight. Things went really well. Fair play, you know, congratulations and hugs and, you know, high fives and nothing meant as much to me. Mm-hmm. Not family, not journalists, not the coach, not anybody apart from the guys on the pitch with me. It always meant more to me than anything else, what they thought. But but then the problem with that, and that's all well and good, all wholesome, but the problem with that is if they thought I was an idiot, <laughs> it was the most devastating thing ever. And I did, um, I got more comfortable after those kind of one-on-ones and those challenging conversations with a sports psychologist. I did you know, find my voice and find an ability just to, to say, you know, and I definitely did let myself down once or twice. But to your point, what was the worst could happen? Um, you know, you look a bit stupid for a minute or two, but people forget about that. You know, no one's no one's telling those stories. Now, at least I haven't heard anybody telling the story about me saying something stupid at a team meeting, you know? Right. Well, well the, I mean, there's two points there for me. One is nobody really cares that much about what you do, right? We think that others care way more about us than, than they really do, right? I think that's in mm. any walk of life. Forget about, right? That's one thing. The other thing is too, the, the question I'll always ask an athlete is, is like, would you ever talk to a teammate the way you talk to yourself? Mm. And invariably the answer is no. Meaning even if you look stupid or you make a mistake or you have a, a terrible game, you're going to be harder on yourself than they are, right? <laughs> They're mm-hmm. probably going to come up and pat you on the back and say, hey, get them next time. It's all right. And you're thinking that, you know, they're going to, they're going to excommunicate you. And that's uh, just not really the way it works in most cases, maybe once in a while, but it's not, it's not it. Right. But we, we convince ourselves that that's what's going to happen. Yeah. We, we, we think we are the, like, we think we're the center of the universe. We, <laughs> right. think, it, we think it's a Truman show. Like we think like everybody here, they're all going to remember <laughs> every stupid thing I've done. And uh, you're right. I, I, the, the humbling element of this, the lesson we can learn is we're forgettable. People don't really care about us as much as we care about us. Well, I mean, listen, and and, and there's a couple of things in there that I want to draw because I think it's really important, right? Because really what you've described is, you know, listen, athletes, the most elite athletes have a large but healthy ego, right? You need to, right? Otherwise, it's just a hobby. It doesn't, it's just um, for the purely for the love of it, right? You have to have an ego to be competitive and you've got to be really good, right? So like that fuels the athlete, but it can also work against the athlete. And then ultimately what you said at the end there is really important and maybe it kind of transitions the conversation a bit is like, unfortunately, everyone is replaceable and everybody is going to retire, right? And so talk about that, right? Obviously you went through a really long career. I mean, I'm sure there most people don't play as long as you played, but at what point did you start to know, hey, maybe this is coming to an end? Uh, actually, the the time between starting to think this is coming to an end and it coming to an end was very, very short. Really? Yeah. And um, I, I, so retirement for me was, um, I looked forward to it. Um, uh, by, by the time I, I started to realize I might not have much of an option here, it was the only option I wanted anyway. Um, so I had an extra year in my contract and um, I went to our guy at my team who I knew well. And I said, listen, um, you know, I'm kind of dropping down the pecking order here a little bit. There's a couple of things I want to do outside of rugby. Um, 
what say we you know come up with something that's going to work i'll get out of here early and um you know financially whatever let's have a look and see if we can come up with something that works and he goes uh, he goes great brilliant and part of me was like oh i kind of wanted you to argue <laughs> that was with too me. easy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want it to be that easy um so that yeah that was kind of confirmation and um everybody's happy came up with something that worked and um and the relief for me you know i had it was a tough it was a tough kind of last certainly last year anyway i i wasn't playing much rugby it was a little injured in bits and pieces any rugby i was playing wasn't performing it wasn't really reflecting what i leaving the legacy i wanted to and um yeah it just i kind of fell out of love with with rugby and for me i mentioned that that purple patch you know i finished when i was 33 and i had that purple patch when it was 29 30 31 uh, and then very soon after, I'd say I was I was in my prime, um, really like eighteen months before I decided to finish. Um, that's how quickly it happened. Now I know some people would probably think come to the conclusion that maybe that's a reflection. Maybe you did have the ability to get back there, and you just didn't have. I didn't have the stickability, or I didn't ha- I didn't want to dig deep. I, I didn't have the fight, and that, that there's an element of truth to that. I didn't have the fight. I'd fought a number of times, been at kind of rock bottom, injuries way down the pecking order, and I had fought two or three times to come back and get my performances back where they needed to be or what reflected where where I should be. I just didn't have I didn't have it in me to fight one more time at the age of 33, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I was happy with that, but I did I I did get some criticism um from from a teammate, a very honest teammate that I know very well, and he thought I should have stuck at it. There was a new coach coming the following season. I could have got back there. Um, but I just didn't want it. I didn't want it anymore. And uh and I was I was looking for I was excited about other stuff as well. So that's where I was when I finished. But I but I think, you know, it it sounds like right, you, you you're, you were ready, right? The, the motivation wasn't there to continue to put in the, 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 the amount of work, which I'm sure was, you know, extensive to continue to stay, right? Like you sort of made up your mind. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I see with athletes who are faced with retirement, the difference between someone who chooses to get out on their own terms and someone who's forced out. And it sounds like, you know, I don't know, we'll, we'll get into this. It does, I don't know if you had a specific plan or not, but like, just, just knowing like, Hey, it was time for me to move on. Even if I've got the physical ability left, if I don't have the desire, like it's going to be really hard to be successful to put the work in. Whereas a lot of athletes stay too long or they try to overcome the stuff. And then when they get out, they don't know what to do with themselves. And that leads to a lot of other challenges like, you know, mental health and, you know, addiction and all these other things that, you know, athletes who are forced out, you know, into retirement, they, they don't know how to cope. So at that point, did you have a plan in terms of what you wanted to do post rugby career? I had, I had a few ideas and a few thoughts, but I didn't have a clear, this is the direction I okay. want to go. Um, but I, regardless of what I did, I was excited about doing something different. I, um, for a couple of reasons, I had mentioned to you about that that, you know, I, I felt like I fulfilled potential late in the game. Had I not had that period where I fulfilled potential, 2014, I was in the, the we won the Six Nations. Um, I was the Irish Rugby uh, Player of the Year. Um, I And then we went on, we won in um, South Africa for the first time. We won, we beat the All Blacks in Chicago for the first time. 
um, and we beat um, Australia at home. Um, in, and so South Africa, New Zealand and Australia in one calendar year hadn't been number four. So it was a few things I was part of. And I had been part of a, a, a triple crowns, they were called, whenever in the Six Nations, you know, it's Ireland, Scotland, England and Wales. And you have to win all three games to um, to run, win the triple crown. I'd been part of a couple of teams that won those, but I was a passenger in those teams. You know, I, I felt like I was, I happened to be a part of it, but I didn't contribute to it or I didn't play as big a role as I wanted to. And with those other, with those um, ones that I was mentioning, I was a part of it. I deserved to be there. I contributed to it. I was a part of that effort. Um, and um, that made me feel the most um, amazing sense of achievement because it took me a long time to get to it that I just felt incredible. I just felt like I'd fulfilled potential. And I think having had that, you know, a few years later, being able to retire, just knowing it's a relief. At least I've fulfilled my potential. I haven't left anything out there. Um, I could have done more, but I'm I'm pleased with what I've done. And um, that allowed me to move on and transition in something different. And I was excited about something different anyway. And I was excited about a change of scenery, a change of environment. And um, yeah, I was excited about it. So I'll go back to what you had mentioned very early in the podcast. That's sort of that idea that that singular focus is something that really can help an elite athlete, right? Everything is directed in into the performance and sort of you're almost, you're in this isolation, you know, sort of bubble of the club and performance, and then you get out of it. And then there's like this whole new world, which like you maybe not, you're not ready for it, but it's really can be really exciting. So can you talk about that? Like when you sort of stepped out and you started to look for the next thing to do, like, what was that like? How did you feel when you left and then you started looking for, well, what's my next move? Yeah, it re- it's really weird. It's it's like um, it's like you just discover this whole whole universe, and you just just discover this whole version of life that you hadn't experienced before. Even mm-hmm. you know, um, just working a working in an office in town, getting the train, commuting, and eating whatever I wanted. You know, having weekends <laughs> to myself, and um, you know, kids were uh, you know are still at you know at a good stage, and getting to hang out with them, and have the crack with them, and have fun, and you know, just not have um just like i just remember we used to play friday night with with the club and then all saturday you'd be wrecked like you'd be just beaten up it's like you've been in a car crash every single weekend you play Mm. that's the feeling and just something just as trivial as not feeling like shit every every weekend you know just (laughs) feeling feeling good feeling physically good and um having energy to do things and um yeah and, and then ultimately not not feeling kind of the dread of having to go in and lift weights and hit a score that's on a scoreboard in the gym on monday morning and um having done your review and then kind of going in if things aren't going well there's no worse environment monday morning that you know crisis meetings and reviewing you know bad performance of the weekend just all that anxiety and stress and i was just Mm. i'm i'm excited now there's a certain amount of anxiety and stress about getting it getting a new job and upskilling when you're in your mid-30s and you've got a family to look after you know that's that comes with its own level of anxiety but it's Absolutely, different yes um and uh yeah ultimately you know the the, the startup and getting get into kairos which um you know we were quite excited about and a lot of the the principles of kairos the the communication app um for for pro teams a lot of the principles of what we were looking to implement there and the value we were looking to add in there was 
was based on what I experienced in that environment, how I understood that high performance environment, how I knew athletes wanted to be communicated to and how they didn't want to be communicated to. So I just had a rich um, uh, kind of experience of that. And there's a lot of value in that. And I could, I could channel that ultimately into a new product, a new challenge. Um, and I had to upskill and, you know, dramatically upskill. I knew I had to learn how to use um, software technology. I had to learn how to um, use a CRM and I used to have to, you know, raise money, speak to investors, you know, sell a product, all of this stuff. I hadn't done any of this stuff. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Mm. And, you know, for me, my, I, I feel really strongly that athletes, um, certainly have the raw ingredients. Um, if you think about athletes at the, you know, you get dropped, you know, you, you either get selected or dropped, you're either fit or you're injured, your highs and lows, all of that stuff is just resilience. And then the game changes every three, four five years and you have to change, you change positions, something happens, you pick up an injury, something happens, you have to reinvent yourself, dis- rediscover yourself, you have to be innovative on the pitch, you have to be, you have to understand what makes you tick, you have to find ways socially to get on with with teammates to, you know, even just to speak to speak to media, all this sort of stuff, it's all raw ingredients of someone who can transition to business but that's just raw ingredients you you don't have a clue about how business works and you, it's that balance that's um it's it's challenging but it's exciting as well yeah that's that's really <clears throat> un, unintentionally that has probably been one of the biggest themes that's come out of this podcast it wasn't my intention when i started i didn't think about entrepreneurship as a component of this conversation. But what I've come to learn is that a lot of former athletes have the raw ingredients to use your phrase to be entrepreneurs because of the resilience, the ability to deal with adversity, the the fact that you're putting every ounce of time, energy, and and even money finances into certain in certain cases into this objective, this end goal, which is not guaranteed as an athlete, right? Like somebody always has your fate in their hands to a large degree, right? You could be the best rugby player in the world, but if somebody doesn't agree with your opinion, you're not going to have a spot on the roster, right? So ultimately you're taking all these risks emotionally and otherwise, and there's no guarantee. And that's the same thing with entrepreneurship, right? You get into it. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I want to do this. I want to solve this problem, which is, sounds like the genesis of how Kairos started, which was like, Hey, I, I think I can build a better mousetrap for how, organizations and athletes can communicate. And so I'm going to apply what I've learned in that space and figure out how to do it, which is basically what you describe right? all these elements of running a business, which are, there's so many, right? You learn the hard way. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, um, the, what the, the raw ingredients and what I was able to transition the, the, the value that I had was I, ju- I understood the problems. I, I right. intimately understood the problems and has, I, I was frustrated by the problems, communication problems in, in high performance environments for years. You know, we, um, just to commit, it's, which I find it unusual that the communication space, um, in, in pro teams is just so, is so dry. I, I find it interesting that we walked, I used to walk down into the gym and you'd see five pieces of technology immediately. You know, there's a force plate, nor board, um, gym aware, all this, all this stuff. And then there's all these kind of nutrition, um, shakers and all this, you know, like 10 different, um, supplements and you want like nutrition's they've ticked that box and they've ticked the, the, the S and C, the, the, performance box. And, but upstairs in the, in the physio room, someone rubs against the whiteboard and they wipe off 10 names and everybody just loses 
their mind because no one knows what time their appointments are tomorrow or you know people are in like 15 different whatsapp groups and they exit a group after every away game and or there's a pdf sent out an email you know from six months ago with some you know code of conduct or some policy or some principle that guys are supposed to be accountable for it doesn't exist it's in an email from six months ago guys don't it's not they're not listening not paying attention so communication space is so clumsy I thought that's a space that we can solve some problems there, especially when you think of high-performance athletes. The typical profile is single-minded, focused, that next game, that next session. Don't distract athletes with multiple group chats and you know, sending Google Google Drive links or Huddle links or Zoom links. or everything. Don't use 10 different mechanisms through five different departments to speak to athletes. Just put it right in front of them and just make it easy for them because all you want from that athlete is to be able to perform score goals score touchdowns score tries just make it easy for them to do that just give them the information make it one click rather than 10 clicks and they will own that more they'll be more accountable for that so ultimately that's what we we, we're we're achieving with kairos so so how long has the company been in existence um we uh we launched the company 2018 I think um, we raised some investment, um, some angels, friends and family um, institution in Belfast. Again, that was all new to me. Didn't know how to manage a cap table, manage an investment round, all that sort of stuff. Dilution, hadn't a clue. Equity, don't know. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd studied finance, so I understood kind of a lot of principles, theory principles. But right. um, yes, yeah, so we launched the company. We got a bit of support and we got um, some smart engineers to, to build the you know our vision and what we wanted to achieve and um, we launched the system in um, uh, january 21 into english soccer um by now two, two and a half years later we've got half the premier league use our system um senior teams full academies um senior women's teams across a whole kind of range of of um of setups there but yeah, we've um, we've managed to hit the ground running. We've added some value straight away, and then that network, that sports network, football network in the UK, is really connected. Guys lead teams, and we get opportunities elsewhere. And yeah, we're trying to to launch the system in the in the states. That's why you know, I saw you at the at the event and getting mm-hmm. into those networks and trying to to share you know how much how much value we can offer offer teams yeah. ultimately. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you probably to answer a hard question, but of all the things that you had to learn or all the challenges that you faced in sort of starting the business and sort of from 2018 to today, five years, like what was the biggest, the, the, if you could pick one thing, what was the biggest challenge for you as, as a professional to run and sort of grow a business? Um, I'd say one of the, one of the most exciting things, but one of the things that I was, I had no, um, no skill set for was, it was managing a team and, um, I suppose managing engineers, managing, you know, marketing team, sales team, all this kind of, mm-hmm. you know, all of this is, it's just all so, all so new to me. Um, we're very, very lucky that we've got an amazing team. And I think, you know, the, the, the culture, culture is something I kind of really understand, but no one really understands culture. Nobody really understands how that happens. And hopefully the kind of the conclusion we're coming to is that myself and my, my co-founder, Hopefully, hopefully the conclusion I'm coming to is accurate, that we're good people and we like the company of good people. And we have um, a, a levels of kind of accountability and expectation from each other and what we, um, we expect uh, each other to deliver. And that 
kind of is the seed for the the kind of culture that we've developed um we very rarely um lose staff members because people love what we're doing they're really excited a lot of um engineers that are sports fans football fans and um they love they just love the story and they love being part of something that's quite exciting um so uh, it's it's just i suppose that that is all foreign to me get more and more comfortable with it i'm more and more excited about it and in a similar way i described um you know whenever i had the season of my life playing rugby and um you know the best thing about it was sharing it with the people who their opinion meant the most to me whenever we get big wins and we get signed big deals not big deals whenever we sign deals with big high profile teams football teams baseball teams um sharing that with the team is the most amazing thing and us just enjoying that together and celebrating that together is is um one of the most exciting things one of the most amazing things about about the business yeah and and i think you know the word I don't think you used it, but I think the word that comes to mind when, when I was listening to you is trust, right? It's the same as any high performing athletic team, which is if there's not complete trust amongst the members of that team, whether it's coaching, management, athletes, right? If you don't have that trust, it's going to be really hard to operate as a cohesive unit. And it same goes for a business, which that is really hard, right? When you're, when you're, when you've got a team of people, whether it's 10 people or hundred people or a thousand people, everyone's going to have a divergent interest, right? Maybe it's just a job. Maybe it's I'm here to make money and then go, right? Like to keep everybody on the same mission and the same page is really, really hard. And if, but if you could do that and everyone's pulling in that direction and you're able to, to facilitate that, you're probably have the, the, zone, you've planted the seeds for something really, really special. Absolutely. It's, it's trust. I, there was an expectation um, from my teammates when I played, I'm going to do this. I need you to do this. Otherwise mm-hmm. we're both going to look stupid. And the same thing is true now. So again, people, I think sometimes people get carried away with the, you know, the, the principles in sport and how they transfer to, to business. But certainly there's, there's, there's numerous principles that we've um, kind of stumbled across that, that still stand. Um, you know, my, my business partner uh, makes fun of me because, because back in the day, there'd be like a business principle and he would explain to me by a sporting analogy. And it got to the point where if he, and he, he would say, just to wind me up, he would say, it's a little bit like in rugby when, and I just knew, I was like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. We're not having this conversation again. <laughs> so, uh, what's, so ultimately what's your vision for Kairos? What's the vision for the business? um we we want to work with as many um high performance teams as possible and we want to work with as many kind of um big logos as possible big teams we want we feel like we have have something that's gonna dramatically enhance the environment so the the practical version of of kairos um but the the practical benefit is time we're going to save staff members time we're going to save players time Mm -hmm. because they're they're not going to have to be looking around for information it's going to be right there in their hand there and then so we're going to like literally save them hours a week staff members hours a week but that's not that sexy it's you know it's quite good we're saving them time but it's not it's not the set big sexy story that we're telling the big sexy story is and we heard this feedback from the early days Kairos removes the lazy questions from athletes and you'll know what I mean by 
easy questions. It's it's athletes who who can find their information out somewhere. It sits somewhere buried in their phone, but they just ask a lazy question. What time's the bus again tomorrow? What color jerseys are we in blue or red? You know, this kind of stuff. Stuff that they can find out somewhere else. So if they don't ask those lazy questions anymore, then they are more accountable for the information that's in their app. The information is more accessible. They can get it easily. They know where it is. If they're more accountable for it, they own it more. Um, mm. If they're if they're um, exhibiting more ownership over the information that's being shared, then we're actually demonstrating more conscientious athletes, a cultural impact. So ultimately, we're we're challenging and impacting the culture of the teams that we're working with. Yes, we're saving them time, and there's a business case around time safe for expensive sure. athletes and staff members. But the really cool story is that we're allowing athletes to understand themselves better, understand what makes them tick, and then be more bought into the plan that the coaches imp- uh, implement. Um, I, I always think an unhealthy high-performance environment is whenever coaches tell athletes what to do. Whenever athletes are part of that story and they contribute and they communicate back and forth and they come up with a plan together, they're way more bought into that. So ho- hopefully, ultimately, that's what Kairos can do. So, So that's... I love that you sort of finished on that point because that's something that's kind of a a real deep interest of mine in sports psychology, which is the concept of creating a self self determined motivation for the athlete. Right, the sense, the perception that the athlete has control over what happens and that they're involved and they have a say, rather than being told what to do all the time, because then it creates this sort of resentment or this like, you know, lack of accountability because someone else is either telling them what to do and it's frustrating or it's disappointing or making them angry, or they're just tuning out because they, they don't have the incentive to actually take responsibility either way, right? Like giving them a stake in that situation where they have to manage their time is, is going to be a good thing and it's going to spill over into other areas like performance, into, you know, how they carry themselves outside of the club, all those things, right? Now you're creating, to your point, a culture of involvement, of of collaboration versus it being, you know, top-down management. Uh, yeah, I mean, if I, if I go to my kids and say, um, <laughs> here's what we're going to do, there's very little chance that we're going to do that because they've got their own ideas. Um, now there's occasions whenever I have to try and trick them into saying what I want them to say, to be fair. But, um, they, you know, I just think people in general, if they feel like they're contributing to a plan, they're yes. a part of the plan, it's their plan. They own it way more and they execute better on it. Definitely. So, so as we wrap up the, the final question I'll ask is, is the final question I ask everybody on this podcast. Um, so uh, given your experiences, like what's the one piece of advice that you might give to an athlete who's looking to the future, right? They're, they, they know that they sort of, their time is coming, uh, and they're looking to make that move to the next phase of life. Like what's the piece of advice you'd give to that, to that person? Um, and this, it's, is this kind of like a punchy finish? Cause I've, I've, my, I've got something a little bit long winded. Go, go um, for it. No, no, yeah. go for it. Um, the, my, the practical advice I would give is, and my experience of this was I, I studied, I did you know, an undergrad uh, theology. I did a, a postgrad management and I did a master's in finance. So I, I studied loads. I wish I'd done more practical. I got more practical experience. I wish I'd, um, you use my network, you know, all of a sudden, Whenever you stop playing rugby, people stop wanting to speak to you. That is your sweet spot. Whenever you're playing, 
you know, there's fans of the game working in businesses in, in town and they want to spend time with you. That's the time to get in front of them and say, listen, I don't know what I want to do, but I like what you do. Can you sit down with me? Can you spend some time with me? Can I shadow you? Practically, you'll learn way more through that, through getting into the workplace and and um, and and shadowing people that you're interested in what they're doing. So practically, um, yeah, get practical experience. The other one, the other piece of advice I would give is, and based on my experience, um, I find it hard to back myself. As we as we were discussing earlier on, mm-hmm. it's, it was a key skill that I had to develop on the pitch to be able to back myself. And I eventually backed myself. I found something that worked. I understood myself and I managed to get to the point where I was able to execute well enough to reflect the level of performance that I expected from myself. Um, I also, I, I, I studied whenever I was t- telling you there about um, studying, I didn't have any finance background. I kind of coerced my way into getting on the course, managed to do it and did really well eventually. And I, I had no experience of it, but I knew at that stage, there's two or three times. Um, one other time, I was um, made captain of the club, a co-captain actually with um, uh, one of the other guys, obviously. And um, I had no experience of captaining a team, leading a team. Um, we didn't have a successful season, but I know personally, I developed a load that year. I knew I learned more about myself. I understood how to um, save my voice. I knew how to communicate key messages and to deliver to the team and hopefully get the best of the team we didn't have a, a vintage season by any means but i learned a lot about myself and i learned that i was capable of leading and being a captain so again those three things um things that i'm not necessarily that good at but i can start something new and back myself and if i back myself i can i can deliver and deliver um deliver um value so same thing i had to really harness that mindset whenever i finished so my ultimately long way around um, saying my advice is absolutely back yourself go out there and back yourself say yes to everything take on any opportunities because you don't know what you might stumble across you might discover a skill that you've just been sitting on or you haven't realized you're good at this because you've just been playing sport for 10 years back yourself take on any opportunity because you might discover something and uh, i know hopefully that's the way you get the best of yourself that's great i mean i I appreciate you sharing all of your story, your insight, your knowledge. I think your background is exactly who we're speaking to on the podcast. So Andrew, thank you for coming on and spending a little bit of time to talk to me. Uh, It was great to see you again and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Good man, Michael. Thanks a lot for having me on. Enjoyed that. Thank you. Our conversation with Andrew Trimble, a former professional rugby player turned entrepreneur illuminates the importance of self-confidence, mentorship, and adaptability in both the athletic and business worlds. So, what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Andrew? My biggest takeaway is that the lessons learned on the sports field are not restricted to that realm. They transcend into the business world and beyond. Andrew's journey from overcoming personal hurdles such as shyness and self-doubt to starting his own company is a testament to the resilience and determination athletes embody. His approach in cultivating trust and accountability in his team lays the foundation for a thriving venture. We're incredibly thankful to Andrew for sharing his journey and wisdom with the Freshman Foundation community. Learn more about Kairos Sports Technology at kairostech.io. You can follow Andrew on Instagram at andrewtrimble1414. 
To be ready for your next step in the game of life through mental performance coaching, visit michaelvhuber.com. We look forward to welcoming you back for episode 64. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at The Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks. Ready to get better.